This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Our guest for today is Professor Kelsey Sagstetter. She's taught at Oberlin's Classics Department. She is an assistant professor of ancient Mediterranean at the United States Naval Academy. She earned her BA at the University of Texas, Austin, her MAs at Boston University and the University of Pennsylvania, and her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Kelsey, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you for having me. 264 BC. Tell us about Rome. Well, in the third century, Rome is a republic, so it's governed not that differently from our constitution with a senate, uh, various assemblies made up of civilians. The head of the government were uh, two consuls uh, that were elected. Uh, Rome was really, at that point, a local power. It had started to expand throughout the Italian peninsula, and it was slowly sort of becoming the power of the region, and its uh, power was based on its army. And it was conquering the various neighboring territories, and so by the 260s, it had taken control pretty much of the entire Italian peninsula. Tell us about Carthage. What, where, what was Carthage? What was, what was their base of power? Carthage was originally a colony from what's modern-day Syria, uh, ancient Phoenicia, and they were really the premier naval power in the region. They had control over all of the shipping, uh, over all of the trade. They had colonized a lot of northern Africa and also what's modern-day Spain, and it was really only a matter of time as Rome expanded off the Italian peninsula. It was really only a matter of time before they came into contact and eventually conflict with the Carthaginians. So why did Carthage develop this this navy and Rome didn't by the third century? Well, first of all, Carthage came from a seafaring tradition. The Phoenicians uh, from ancient times, from about the 9th, 8th centuries BCE, were a colonizing power. And they were famous for it throughout antiquity as being the ones to uh, to explore, to found colonies, to uh, come into contact with other cultures. And the Romans just didn't, they weren't there yet. They were new. They were a very young culture. Uh, they hadn't become what we think of when we think of ancient Rome. We think of the empire, Rome controlling the Mediterranean. They were on the way to that, but it hadn't happened yet. Thucydides famously writes in the history of Peloponnesian Wars that the cause of the war was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. Is that the case with Carthage and Rome? I don't think so, because the first Punic War really started as a proxy battle between uh the Greeks on the island of Sicily asking for help from both Rome and Carthage. And uh, eventually they just sort of cut out the middleman and came into conflict with each other. So at this point, Rome is a rising land power. Carthage is an established sea power, but the Carthaginians were pretty much just doing their thing and uh, they weren't particularly worried about the Romans. What, what made Sicily so important to both of them? 
Well, the resources. Sicily was something of a breadbasket for the Mediterranean. It was uh, incredibly rich agriculturally. It had been colonized by both the Greeks and the Carthaginians from about the 8th century BCE, and there were a lot of well-established, powerful cities that had control of those resources. So what kind of resources would they have had on Sicily? Mainly agricultural. Where were, if if you're looking at the island of Sicily, northeast, west, south, where are we talking about in terms of Greek colonies, the Carthaginian colonies, and eventually the Roman? It was roughly cut in half with the Carthaginians occupying the western half of the island and the Greeks occupying the eastern half of the island. And the Romans first came into contact, obviously, with the Greeks, and the Straits of Masana there between the boot, or sorry, between the toe of the boot of Italy is just a very short distance from the northwestern tip of Sicily. And that was colonized by Greeks, and that's the first contact the Romans had with the Greeks on the island of Sicily. What really sparks then the war? Is, is, it, is it the Greek merchants? Is it the, uh, the Roman colonists? Where does this really start in 264 B.C.? Well, in 264, uh, the Greeks were, the Greek uh, city-state of Syracuse was in conflict with some former mercenaries, and they asked the Romans for help against their former Greek allies. The Romans were occupied with some uprisings in the north of Italy, in the Po Valley, and in the meantime, since they didn't reply, basically, the, uh, the Mamertines, the mercenaries, asked the Carthaginians for help. When the Romans finally did show up, they found the Carthaginians there and decided that they were going to pretty much cut out, like I said, cut out the middleman, and uh, that that's where the Romans and the Carthaginians first came into conflict. Did the Romans and the Carthaginians then both use mercenaries to a large degree during the Punic Wars? The Carthaginians were famous for their use of mercenaries. The Romans tended to exploit their own manpower since they had control over the Italian peninsula. They were able to use their own citizens and allies. So they used they did utilize mercenaries to some degree, but to a much lesser extent than the Carthaginians, who, uh, who used mercenaries from the area surrounding Carthage, particularly Numidia. The 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 galleys were the galleys. The, were there places where they could just hire merchant gal? Uh, sorry, galleys that were manned by mercenaries. Oh, the Roman galleys tended to be rowed by slaves, uh, whereas the Carthaginians, uh, either citizens or or mercenaries. When you're talking about Carthage and Rome and their wealth, how would they compare at the outbreak of the war? At the outbreak of the war. The Carthaginians were in the superior position as far as wealth went. Like I said, they had control of pretty much the shipping in the entire Mediterranean. They had access to their colonies in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain, uh, which was particularly rich in silver and precious metal mines. And the Romans were just this upstart colony that was sort of thuggishly taking over uh, the Italian peninsula, beating up on their neighbors. So the Carthaginians were in the superior position, I would say, at the start of the war. What kind of government did uh, Carthage have at this time? 
We don't know a lot of the details of the Carthaginian government because most of our sources are Roman. We do know there was some sort of a Senate, uh, was ruled by a traditional or a hereditary aristocracy, but um, we, we don't we don't know as many of the details as we do of the Roman government, but it doesn't seem to have been terribly different from the Roman government. We do know there was a Senate. We do know that there was a traditional aristocracy that, um, you know, set most of the agenda and ran ran the show. Can you tell us what kind of sources are available to us today? And maybe if you could tell us about what we think may have been lost. We know a lot of Greek texts which were lost over time, some histories, some literature, but what about sources for the Punic Wars? What what have you found have been the best? Our main sources for the Punic Wars is uh, an author named Polybius, who was actually a Greek hostage. He was part of a family that had rebelled. Rome had, by this time, started to interfere in the Mediterranean in Greece. And uh, Polybius was, his father had been a, a general that had fomented rebellion against the Romans. So Polybius is uh, generally considered to be a very detailed, uh, very accurate source. And uh, he was, but but we have to use him with caution because he was in a bit of a tricky situation. He was writing about the history of Rome and he was a hostage of Romans. So he had to... Um, we had to make the Romans look good, essentially. So we have to to use his him as a source with with some caution. Although he generally is is considered to be very accurate, our other major source is Livy, who lived during the first century uh, BC. And the problem with Livy is that he lived centuries after the events that he was describing, and he probably used Polybius as one of his sources. So for storytelling flair i would go to livy because he's just fun he tells it like it's a like it's a, a novel unfolding uh for tactics and terrain and strategies things like that i would go to polybius what about from the carthaginian perspective was is there are there any surviving documents or any peripheral maybe archaeological digs that give us some indication of where they were at this time we don't have any surviving literary documents from carthage uh, Rome took care of that pretty Carthage much. Carthage was destroyed. Carthage was destroyed, in fact, in the Third Punic War in 146 BC. So we don't have a Carthaginian voice in the way that we do from from the Roman perspective. The only thing that we have of Carthage are the archaeological remains, from which we can see that it was a great city. It was fortified. It had control over much of the surrounding countryside. It was clearly a very wealthy city uh, until the Romans came and did their bit. Who comes up with the term Carthage must be destroyed? That's a story that Cato, the elder, a stodgy sort of upper class patrician Roman senator, uh, decided that after the Second Punic War, decided that Roman morals had started to backslide. And Rome was greatest when it had a common enemy. So every time the story goes, he got up and gave a speech in the Senate, no matter what it was about, could be completely unrelated. He would end his speech with Carthago de Linda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. And so finally, in my mind, it's always the Romans finally saying, okay, Cato, shut up, fine. We'll go destroy Carthage. But that's where that saying comes from. 
was there any broad movement that you could find in records on in political speeches or the literature of the period that that also tries to convey this over the period of the Punic Wars? Was to this convey. To, to, to convey this sense of um, Roman superiority, uh, the necessity for Carthage to be defeated, uh, that it was clearly an enemy, there was no way you could work with them? Well, we get all sorts of mythological origin stories of the enmity between Carthage and Rome. And, of course, the most famous is the story of Aeneas, the one of the survivors of the Trojan War, fleeing to fulfill his God-given destiny to found Rome. And he stops in the city of Carthage and is given... Uh, shelter by the Queen Dido, who is this just magnificent, uh, herself a refugee from Phoenicia, but she's this magnificent, wealthy uh, queen who falls in love with Aeneas, and he gets a little too comfortable, and so finally the god Mercury comes and says, hey, Aeneas, you got to get going. So he leaves Dido, and in her despair, she destroys herself. She commits suicide, and that is the mythological foundation of that enmity between the descendants of Dido, the Carthaginians, and the descendants of Aeneas, who eventually became the Romans. And of course, the most famous telling of that is Virgil's Aeneid from the first century uh, BC, which of course, again, is a sort of retrojection of a glamorous mythological past onto this conflict that makes it seem like it was inevitable. When does the war actually start and how? The conflict actually started in 288 BC when a group of mercenaries called the Mamertines, who had originally been hired by Syracuse, the Greek tyrant there named Agathocles, they seized the town of Messina, and they killed all of the men, they enslaved the women, and they started ravaging the countryside. And when they came into conflict with Syracuse, their former employer, they asked both the Romans and the Carthaginians for help against the Syracusans. And supposedly, according to Polybius, there was a big debate in the Roman Senate about whether or not they should accept the Syracusans' request for help, because that meant that they would most likely come into conflict with Carthage, who was a big presence on the island. And uh, the other part of that is that it didn't sit well with a lot of the Romans to offer help to somebody who had basically stolen a town and killed all of the rightful inhabitants. But they eventually did accept the uh, Mamertines' plea for help, and by the time they got there, the Carthaginians had also accepted the plea for help and established a garrison in the town. So that's the origins of the the conflict when the Romans arrived, the Carthaginians were already there and fighting broke out and it spiraled. Can you talk about some of these battles? And I I want to refer to one particular book that came out in 1937 by Admiral William Ledyard Rogers. It's called Greek and Roman Naval Warfare. And Rogers had been a Naval Academy graduate of 1878. He had commanded a small torpedo boat during the Mexican, sorry, during the Spanish-American War. Uh, he later serves on the general board, but becomes a, a, a naval historian, military historian, and he writes of one particular uh, siege, the Siege of Lily Bayham. This bold operation under sail is almost the only one of classic times preserved for us. Another one is under Cleopatra at Actium, 
uh, which had wider renown. I'm wondering, what is Lily Bayham? Why is it so important to Rogers when he's writing about this ancient history? Well, first of all, the Romans were not a naval power prior to the First Punic War. This war dragged on for 23 years, and the Romans finally realized that the only way to defeat the Carthaginians, because they were such they had such a superior navy, was to become a naval power themselves. So the First Punic War and the Carthaginians are the reason Rome developed its, its famous navy. Uh, the reason that Lilybaeum was so important is that it was a Carthaginian stronghold on the western tip of the island, and the Romans had blockaded it. The Carthaginians were able to slip the blockade, and at this point, Rome had successfully defeated the Carthaginians in several significant naval engagements. And so it was a blow to Roman pride that the Carthaginians were able to slip the blockade. And the particular battle that was fought off the coast at uh, Cape Trapana was a spectacular failure on the Roman part. And the sort of funny popular story that goes along with it is that before any Roman battle, you have to take the auspices, you have to consult the gods. And in this case, that took the form of observing the sacred chickens to see if they would eat. Yeah, well, so the Romans, I mean, the Romans are blockading, the Carthaginians are slipping the blockade, but the Romans decided before the Romans engaged the Carthaginians, the priest observed the sacred chickens who refused to eat. And the commander, Publius Claudius Pulcher, famously said, if they won't eat, let them drink. Threw them overboard and drowned the sacred chickens. And the weather also refused to cooperate. Whether or not it was because of the sacred mistreatment of the sacred chickens or not, that's that's not for me to say. But uh, the weather refused to cooperate. The Roman formation ended up being strung out, so the visibility was low, and the formation was destroyed, and the Carthaginians were able to absolutely destroy uh, the Roman navy. The Romans lost about 93 ships, and something between eight and 20,000 people were killed. I know that's a huge span, that's a huge number, but uh, we're not really sure. Ancient battle figures are notoriously kind of fuzzy, but tens of thousands of people were killed at this this single engagement where the Carthaginians were basically able to, combination of luck and skill, set the Romans back. And that that concludes the First Punic War at that point? No. Or they continue? No, the war continues for Okay, so they, uh, for they've, uh, they've been unsuccessful with Lilibaeum. I have to ask you at this point, though, uh, the, the Carthaginians and the Romans seem to have a different take on how to treat your defeated admirals, for example. Uh, and I want to go back to what Led- Ledyard Rogers says, uh, William Ledyard Rogers. Uh, he says of the Battle of uh, Drapana, all right, so this is uh, Publius Claudius? Pulcher, yes. Okay. And he says, uh, the Romans pursued the consul with curses when he returned to Rome, and as the Senate was not beyond learning from an enemy, it inflicted a heavy fine on him, 12,000 denarii about the cost of a ship. Now, later on, when the Carthaginians are defeated at the Battle of, is it Agatian Islands? The Agates Islands. The Agates Islands. They say, he says, 
This decisive victory was the conclusion of the war, and Hanno was crucified on his return home for taking a sporting risk as circumstances and his orders required. Did the Carthaginians simply take a heavier hand uh, in terms of losses with regard to their admirals and generals? I mean, what we know is pretty much what you read. And again, I, the sources are Romans. And so presumably, Polybius and Livy had access to sources that we don't have access to that have been lost. And, you know, presumably, possibly some of those course sources were Carthaginian, but we just don't know. But that story about Publius Claudius Pulcher being fined on his return after his loss, uh, that's, that's pretty common. Roman generals in the field were responsible and held accountable after their campaigns, whether they were successful or not. Um, so that, that particular story is not unusual, uh, and he was actually tried for sacrilege because of the sacred chicken. We laugh at it, but this is actually oh, very so they, serious. Oh, so they took it pretty seriously. Oh, they took it very seriously, yes. You, it was it was high, the height of sacrilege. So uh, that was the, the actual basis for his trial when he got back to Rome. So were the chickens... Uh, only with the fleets, uh, auspice chickens, or were they with the legions as well? Was was this pretty much military-wide? The Romans practiced a number of different types of augury. They observed the flight of birds. They uh, would cut open a sacrificial animal and look at the organs. You know, the spots on a liver, for example, uh, could tell you the will of the gods. Um, so the Romans were a very pious people, and they took their omens very seriously. And no battle or uh, engagement could properly be undertaken without first taking the auspices and gaining the approval of the gods. I'm going to uh, cite another thing from Rogers. Uh, In the course of the 23 years of the First Punic War, the losses by battle and recorded by storms over the course of of 23 years were about 500 for the Romans and about 450 for the Carthaginians. And uh, taking their fleets at the highest, numbering 450 together, etc., it's a service expenditure of about 9% a year. I mean, those are tremendous losses for a period where... Humanity doesn't have a large population. Uh, when we talk about five, 450, 500 ship navies, we haven't seen anything like that in, you know, 25, 30 years. But is this, is it because of the toll it takes, the military toll it takes on both countries or both entities that they conclude that first Punic War? What is, what is it that, that they decide, this is it, we need to stop this right now? Well, the Roman victory at Agates Islands was sort of the deciding battle of the war. But at this point, war's been going on for 23 years, and both sides have exhausted their resources. Uh, They've exhausted their manpower, they've exhausted their shipbuilding resources, and the war just really can't continue. And so the Romans uh, have the upper hand at this point, and they enact a pretty heavy a war tax and uh, what do you call it? An indemnity. Mm-hmm. So they they impose a heavy indemnity on the Carthaginians that they have to pay out over the next several years. What did the What did the Romans gain from the First Punic War territorially? Territorially, the Romans gained the island of Sicily and. Theoretically, the Carthaginians were allowed to keep Corsica and Sardinia, but the Romans kind of pulled a bait and switch on them and ended up grabbing up those islands as well. And so, 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 de- so despite the Carthaginians successfully defending Lilibaeum, they lose their major port, essentially. Yes. 
Eventually, yes. And the real significance of the First Punic War is twofold. It's when Rome became a navy, and it's also the first expansion of Rome off of the Italian Empire. Or, sorry, off of the, uh, the first expansion of Rome off of the Italian Peninsula. So even though we're governed by a republic at this point, you could say that the First Punic War is the origin of the Roman Empire. Do they continue their use of a navy after this point? You said this is really where the Roman navy forms during the First Punic War. Uh, do they carry that on to the Second Punic War uh, and in between and, and afterward? Not really. They built the navy to defeat the Carthaginians, and once the Carthaginians are defeated, ships are expensive to maintain, and they don't really uh, continue at the same pace that they they had been when they were actively fighting the Carthaginians. So they sort of decommissioned a lot of their ships and they really only built up their navy again at the start of the Second Punic War when they once again had need of it. So the Roman naval inst- navy as an institution was really in some ways pretty ad hoc. Was the Carthaginian navy pretty much decimated at that point? I mean, they can they challenge Rome during the Second Punic War at sea? No, absolutely not. When that was part of the terms of surrender was that the Carthaginians were limited to, I think it was about 10 ships. So what they did instead was they expanded their holdings in Spain. And they became a land empire because they were no longer able to maintain control over the sea. So to get briefly into the Second Punic War, is that why Hannibal is able to make his famous crossing with the elephants and he... Yes, and that's that's his really only option because the Romans control the ports. So the Carthaginians can't invade Italy via sea, so the only way to do that is via land. And the other reason that he wants to cross the Alps and come into Italy is hopefully to distract the Romans from attacking Carthage, from attacking his home base, by distracting them by running around Italy, terrorizing the population. How far does he make it? Oh, well, he makes it all the way into the south of the, the peninsula, eventually. I mean, he's there for, for many years. Is this something like, you know, we, we see these, these, these graphs of Napoleon's troops going into Moscow, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops, and on the way back, you know, he comes back with a spattering of them. He loses about half of his forces. He starts out, we read, with about, I think, 40 elephants, and then uh, only a handful survived the crossing of the Alps, and he lost about half of his soldiers. So it was a very dangerous crossing in winter. Uh, no one had really done it before, and there's a reason for that. But he was such a skilled general that he was able to defeat several Roman armies. Anytime the Romans came face-to-face with Hannibal, they were they were defeated, soundly defeated. So once he reaches his destination, what happens at that point with Hannibal? Well, he is trying to account for the fact that he doesn't have the manpower resources that Rome does. Rome lost several armies, but they were on their home territory, so they could renew their, they had basically an exhaustible supply of manpower. Uh, He tried to live off the land, and he tried to disrupt the Roman alliance system. So a lot of the towns and city-states on the Italian peninsula were under Roman control, but not all of them were happy about that. So Hannibal tried to exploit that discontent and stir up trouble amongst Rome's allies so that Rome would be kept busy on the Italian peninsula dealing with their own allies rather than attacking Carthage in either you know, in North Africa or the Carthaginian forces in Spain. 
And how does the Second Punic War conclude? Well, Hannibal was eventually recalled. We had a sort of anti-Hannibal faction that came to power in the Senate while he was in Italy. And when he finally left the Italian peninsula, a talented Roman commander named uh, Publius Scipio took the battle to Carthage and at a place called Zama in 202 BC came face to face with Hannibal and that's the first time that Hannibal faced a Roman army and lost and that was the conclusion of the Second Punic War. And then there's a brief period. They enter a very brief Third Punic War, and that is the final episode for them. And that is it, and Carthage itself, the city, is razed to the ground and utterly destroyed. And the legend goes that the Romans hated the Carthaginians so much that they sowed the fields with salt. Now, that's nonsense. The Romans were very practical people. Uh, They didn't sow the fields with salt. They put Romans there, settled in that territory and used it because it was very rich agricultural land. You've been teaching classics in this period for a while now. How do you convey naval warfare and politics and orations from that period to midshipmen at the Naval Academy or or really anywhere at college? I make them do it themselves. How do they do that? do a lot of activities in my class that require them to get up and practice public speaking. Uh, We study speeches from ancient Romans like Cicero, and I engage in a pedagogy called reacting to the past, which has students assigned a character. Uh, For instance, in this class that I'm teaching right now, the fall of the Roman Republic, we're we're about to start a game called Beware the Ides of March which takes place just after Julius Caesar is assassinated, and each midshipman is a different character. Some of them are pro-Caesarian senators, some of them are anti-Caesarian, and they're going to debate the issues that were actually debated in the Roman city, like what do we do with Caesar's body? Do we give him a public funeral, or do we declare him an enemy of the state? What do we do with the assassins? Do we declare them enemies of the state and pursue them, or are they, as they themselves claim to be, liberators? Uh, Things like that. And so it tends to get very heated. They get very into it, and they uh, they generally do a very good job with it. How did you teach the, the Punic War and the Battle of Trapanum? One of the things that I wanted to teach them about was chain of command and contingencies being ready for for anything, really. And I had my Roman Republic students run a Roman-style campaign for admiral of the fleet, and they gave orations about why they thought they should be chosen admiral, and the students in uh, both of our classes voted, and so we ended up, the first place was the Roman admiral, the second place was the Carthaginian admiral, and they came up with a chain of command of their own and several contingency plans about the the battle, how they would they would conduct the the battle. For for those orations and how they were selected, how how were the midshipmen or the students justifying their vote on who they selected? How what were the characteristics that they were looking for through these orations? Well, I'd have to ask the midshipmen that. <laughs> uh, from my observation, though, it seemed that the ones who were most successful were the ones who had thought about the different tactics that were possible uh, that also seemed to, uh, the vote seems to go in favor of the midshipmen who showed concern for the people that would be under their command. Uh, and 
it was really a good exercise, I think, for them to figure out what made a good leader and what would appeal and what would be effective. The the nice thing about the geography of the Severn River where the United States Naval Academy is located is that it offered a large body of water, it offered terrain, it offered uh, a beach to represent uh, the siege of Lily Bayham. Can you describe what you saw in terms of the Roman fleet that came in in the red kayaks versus the Carthaginian fleet, which which had the blue kayaks? What we did, first of all, is we established a beach, at, we established a home base for the Carthaginians, Lily Bayum, which was represented by, obviously, a giant rubber chicken set up on a tripod. And the Carthaginians set out from Santee Basin, and they beached their kayaks, and to simulate the battle conditions, we gave them about 20 minutes, and then the Romans came after them. And to as closely as possible approximate what actually happened in the real Battle of Trapanum, the Carthaginians weren't allowed to launch their kayaks until they saw the Romans coming. And then each kayak had a flag taped to it. And so if once the kayaks got close enough to engage, if they were able to detach the flag of the enemy kayak, then that kayak was dead in the water and the midshipmen had to disengage and stop whatever they were doing. And the goal on the Romans' part was to beach their kayak, steal the sacred chicken, and make it back out into open water. Now what I saw was some really clever scheming and tactics, especially on the part of the Carthaginians. They had thought in advance of where the well, what they would do in response if the Romans, for instance, hugged the wall, uh, how they would counter that. They had thought of, uh, you know, they had, they had thought about how to split their forces so that somebody was always guarding the sacred chicken in case the Romans sent ground troops, which they actually did, and they were caught uh, by the Carthaginian scouts. And um, the Romans... I mean, you were there. I would, I would say they were kind of a mess, honestly. <laughs> they, yeah, I, I just remember the, the Roman admiral, we didn't know where he was. He right. showed up at the very last minute, whereas the Carthaginian admiral, uh, got they got there about an hour ahead of time, and he had these playing cards on the ground, and he huddled his entire team around, and they were about 12, 13 on each side, uh, to, to, to show them what formations. They went over mm-hmm. the plan again and again. And some of them had never been in kayaks before. That's true. We, and now, they, now to, be, to be fair, we did provide training videos, and for those right, listeners, we did provide safety <laughs> zodiacs. There, there we was a lot with, of attention to yeah. safety in this exercise. And, and we did remove some things that we did not deem were safe. I think there was uh, one side that wanted to put in a, a certified scuba diver yeah, to try to get behind the Yeah, we decided that that wasn't safe, so yeah. we, we nixed that idea, although I did applaud the cleverness. Yeah. Of the, that was it was very creative. But it was kind of impressive when you saw this fleet of Roman galleys, these red kayaks, and they were coming line abreast. They were heading north on the Severn, and then they pulled around, and then you, that's you where heard, the, that's where the formation fell apart. It was actually it was very yeah. well done at first because they were like you said they were they were all abreast and they were coming in unison. It was intimidating looking, and we had a war drum beating in the background to kind of sort of get everybody amped up. And mm-hmm. uh, when they swung around to get into the the narrows where the beach was, that's when the formation fell apart a little bit. And and the Carthaginians were smart because they actually divided their forces. They had. Uh, 
different ad, they had uh, vice admirals who each had a squadron. So one squadron uh, was supposed to intercept the the first Roman galleys. The second were supposed to get the stragglers, and then they left three galleys on the beach just to find just to wait for the if anybody made it through. And one of them actually almost actually one made it to the beach. He did make it taken. to the beach, but he was you know they anticipated that. All right, so the. Uh, the the lesson of this one was the the chicken the chickens died again didn't they yeah the they they didn't they didn't the romans didn't win again no chickens were harmed in the simulation <laughs> of this battle i would like to reassure the listeners of that what do you think the the midshipmen learned from this experience uh with regard to learning about the battle of Drapana? Well, it's easy to learn about the battle. I mean, I can lay out the facts the way that Polybius did, the way that Livy did, uh, and and it's it's just kind of it's just kind of dry on the page. But what they learned, what I hope they took away from the exercise, is that history didn't have to happen the way that it did. What if at the Battle of Drapana it hadn't been foggy and the Romans had been able to maintain their formation? What if the Roman admiral hadn't shown up that day? What if he hadn't found us? What if the Carthaginian admiral had been less competent and didn't anticipate the Roman maneuvers as well as as he did? Uh, and things like terrain, you know, they were very smart. Both sides were very smart, taking advantage of ground troops. And, uh, you know, I had one, the one of the Carthaginian chain of command wanted to, she was, she had done a reading. She knew that the Carthaginians hired mercenaries. So she asked me if she could hire mercenaries. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, can we make our plebes do this as a mandatory Saturday morning training exercise? And I said, absolutely. But unfortunately, they had another commitment. So we didn't get Carthaginian mercenaries. But you know, that sort of thinking outside the box, uh, that would have been completely unexpected by the Roman side, and they would have had to adjust their tactics because their tactics hadn't taken that, you know, no scenario that they had thought. They thought of some pretty creative scenarios. You know, no scenario involved a bunch of plebes on a Mando Saturday morning training <laughs> exercise guarding the rubber chicken on the beach. Would you say they, I mean, you've taught uh, for a while now. Would you say that the students would will remember the battle better having had this hands-on uh, experience this experiential learning rather than just the lectures the videos and the, and the in-classroom uh, experiences definitely and that's one comment that I get consistently because after every exercise like this after every reacting to the past scenario after every you know hands-on situation like Operation Sacred Chicken, I always do a debrief with the students. One, to make sure they know what actually happened, because sometimes our simulation diverges from history. Uh, But two, to give me feedback as to what the most valuable part of the experience is. And when they are taking part in it, when they have a stake in it, they tend to dive more deeply into the sources. They're not just skimming the chapter of a textbook to regurgitate information for a test. They're actually getting into historical characters' heads. They're evaluating sources to see, you know, analytical. It it requires a lot of analytical thinking and analysis that you don't get when you're just reading from a book. Kelsey, what would you recommend? You've mentioned uh, Livy, you've mentioned Polybius, uh, I mentioned William Ledyard Rogers' book. Uh, there's a book called Carthage Must Be Destroyed, which, uh, and I have to say that I thank Commander Salamander, the blogger and the host of Midrats, co-host of Midrats, who had recommended that book to me a few years ago. But are there any other 
books if people want to continue learning about the Punic Wars would you, that you would recommend? There's a book called The Punic Wars by Adrian Goldsworthy that's a pretty accessible account of all three of uh, the Punic Wars. Uh, there's another one called Carthage Must Be Destroyed, The Rise and Fall of an Ancient Civilization uh, by Richard Miles. Uh, that's also a, a good a good place to go for more information. Um, there's been a, a lot more written about the Second Punic War. You don't really have to say. I don't, uh, Kelsey, I don't know why I went there. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, Kelsey, thanks for coming over to Preble Hall uh, for this, this talk. I really appreciate it. And uh, you have a great week. Absolutely. Thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening to the second episode of Preble Hall. We hope you enjoyed it, and thanks for coming aboard. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.